Welcome back to another episode of Reality Quest. Today, we have a very special guest, Miss Kira Benzing, mm-hmm. and she's our first um, remote one. So Kira is, we've been doing a lot of Seattle people because we're in Seattle, and yeah, that's just what's easier, and we, we like the in-person contact. Local celebrities. Yeah, but <laughs> Kira's in New York, and she is such a sweetheart. Um, she agreed to do that whole thing with us and risking the whole technical challenges yeah, of doing our, it all remote and all of that stuff. Be our first guinea pig uh, yeah. experimenting with yeah. long distance. So for those of you that don't know who Kira is, um, besides just being a wonderful, warm, kind soul, she's extremely talented. Uh, she has a background in theater and filmmaking. And um, she, one of her, like, I guess two of her most recent accomplishments, I'll mm-hmm. call it, are the ones that are like in the news. She has, um, she had an official selection um, at Venice Film Festival this year for Love Seat. Yep. And Love Seat is like a, a, a theater piece. It was a romantic comedy. And we get into describing what it is, but essentially it's like a mix of experiences where some of the audience of this theater piece was in VR and some of them were not. Mm-hmm. And the actors were actually in VR, like wearing headsets <laughs> as they're acting and like they're being reproduced in like these animated experiences for the people with headsets on. I know that sounds crazy and you didn't you didn't need to track you didn't need to track with all of that because we do get into it in yeah, the episode. We'll, we'll dive deeper. But that kind of like gives you an idea of like some of the cool shit that she's experimenting <laughs> with. Um, and, uh, for another one was run in, which is like mm-hmm. a, a dance experience and, Working um, with, uh, Reggie Watts on this project and John Tejada. Yeah. They go by Wahada. Wah- what she said. <laughs> Wahada. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Um, but none, neither of these things are like available for you to experience right now because they're yeah. like hot off the press in, in the, um, in, in the film festival rounds, mm-hmm. but we do get to hear about them and she has amazing experience and you can kind of like go look them up in the outro. We'll give all the, the info and the links because even just like watching the trailers for them is really awesome. And Runnin' is like this dance experience that they filmed in the um, volumetric capture studio, Intel's volumetric capture studio. Yeah, the largest in the world. And she was the first VR director to, to work at that studio, which, yes. yeah as you said, is the largest volumetric capture studio. And they have like, I, I didn't look up look it up recently, mm. but I, it's o- well over 100, 100 cameras. Yeah. Um, and we do get over into- Over 100 cameras. Yeah, for anyone that doesn't know what volumetric capture is, we do get into it um, and essentially just like imagine a plentiful amount of cameras capturing like different, you know- You're recording, you're yeah. recording a three-dimensional space. Right. But more on that in the episode. Right, Yeah. Um, and you can just do some really cool stuff in that experience where you have like super powers where you can like, um, do all this cool stuff through movement and the dancing and go up on the ceilings and all of this. So I'm mm-hmm. very excited for when it does come out for all of us to try, but for now you'll have to just use your imaginations. Yeah. Kira is just incredible. She's done a lot of experimentation, um, throughout theater and just taking a lot of risks through her artistic projects. Um, and she's also done a lot of work trying to get VR and these sort of uh, mixed reality kind of experiences out to more people, out to like a broader audience. Yeah, like with that theater piece where she's connecting it through theater and also with audiences. So like it's across mediums, like you have some mm-hmm. people not in the headsets and some people there. And, and she seems very keen on like, yeah, expanding this new dimension in a lot of ways yeah. and, and unique ways. Multi-layered experiences yeah. as far as like different types of, of realities and through which to experience it. Um, we also get into a couple different concepts in this that would be worth uh, prefacing real quick or giving explanation for. Yeah. One, 
being an avatar. Oh, right. Which obviously, like, if you're in the industry, most people know it. But for all of our friends and family who we love who don't know what that is. <laughs> um, an avatar, basically, anytime you're in a digital space, whether it was a video game um, up until more recently and then now in uh, virtual reality or any sort of digital setting. I mean, even in websites, like, uh, avatar is basically just a digital representation of yourself or of you as a character. Yeah. Yeah, um, good. Good job. So... <laughs> <laughs> I think that does it. I like it. Um, what else? We Get also it. we also talked a little bit about High Fidelity, um, which they are an open source uh, VR social platform. Yeah, they kind of uh, allow people to create their own content and generate worlds um, in VR. So that's kind of a big deal, and we we do talk about that as well. Yeah, we don't go into super depth, but it comes up I think early on, and so it's just yeah. like good to know. Definitely worth yeah. the plug there. Um, yeah. I yeah. think that's pretty much pretty much it. Yeah. I mean, Kira's the freaking best and she's gonna she's I mean already leading this industry, you know, and so she's a good person to waves. to keep she's track of and hear her things. thoughts for yeah. sure. Um and then hopefully, you know, as her stuff becomes more available, uh we will definitely keep you posted and, and stick around for the outro because we'll mm -hmm. give all the info on like how to how to follow her on social media, how to access her work that is out there and get some glimpses into it. And we'll follow up when it when the more recent ones become available to the public as well mm -hmm. and remind you to go check it out. Yeah. All right. Well, enjoy the episode. Let's dig in. You just got back from VR Days. Is, can you talk about that a little bit in your Which experience is there? VR Days, it's a it's a conference in Amsterdam. Yeah. Right? Which, Kelly, you've been to. Yeah, I know. I had so much fun there. You know, when I was there, <laughs> and this, I so I was emailing with you a little bit about this. Um, I got to go because Mike was a keynote speaker. And so I just like, you know, what is it called when you like tail ago. on to somebody else? Like when you just like. Like coattails? Coattails. Like, yeah. Riding the riding. coattails. <laughs> That's what I'm looking for. <laughs> it's a new verb, coattailing. Coattailing. Co I don't think that's what I was doing, but I was like, you know, just like getting, uh, you know, to stay in the hotel and all that stuff. But um, anyways, uh, I had no idea what to expect. I've been to Amsterdam before for other reasons, um, but I had such a great time at that conference because there was this like extreme amount of diversity in People, obviously, because you're like in, you know, Europe, so you just automatically have a bunch of countries nearby. But on top of that, it was like diversity in what people were working on, which honestly, in at least from my perspective in the West Coast, there's like a lot of in Seattle, it's a lot of gaming. Obviously, in L.A., it's a lot of storytelling. And these don't tend to converge as much. Uh, and the various conferences, it seems to have a certain focus. But at VR days, it seemed like highly diverse. And there was the coolest theater thing they did. I, you might understand how they did it. Honestly, I had no clue. I was like, my mind was blown. They were doing like a real-time capture in VR of a theater experience. Well, actually, yeah, because that's like literally what you work in. Um, and it was like the first time I had ever experienced anything like that. And so they would have these actors. They, it was like a competition where they put on these plays and then captured them in VR it wasn't the same as you've done for some of your projects where it it, it was 360. It wasn't um, like capturing some sort of animated thing. But somebody could then put on the headset and like watch what they were capturing in 360 at the same time that the audience was watching it on the stage. Wow. And I, 
my mind was totally blown. I didn't understand what the heck was going on. So <laughs> <laughs> this is like back in, I don't know, 2016, 2017. I don't know. So a couple years I was ago. still relatively, you know, like new in it as well, but I still don't understand how they do it. So that's not an excuse. But anyways, <laughs> less about me, more about you. So what, what was your experience there? This was your first time there, right? This is my first time and it's been going on for five years. This is what they called the Lustrum edition, where they are kind of looking back at where we've come from as an industry. And I just saw so many startups experimenting with different types of technologies, working in biofeedback and our brainwaves into VR. I did an experience where they hooked up an EEG to my head so I could actually dive through my own brainwaves. Uh, That's awesome. You did that? I experienced this. Yeah, there's a team that's doing a piece, I believe they're called Brainspace. And I thought it was really beautiful. There's a lot How of. How did you dive through your own? Like, you, yeah, what, say more. <laughs> what, what, what is the premise of the biofeedback? Like, what are you experiencing as you do it? I want to make sure I get the name right. I believe they're called Brain Space. <laughs> Let's see if I can find that. Um, <laughs> one second, guys. The the is that right? Yeah, it was called Brain Space. The so they hooked up an EEG to your head and then they put the VR headset on you and mm. they had a, another special sequence. I don't want to give their piece away exactly because I think they're still in a place of developing it, but they yeah. had, you know, some really interesting animation or kind of setting this interesting space. And then there's a point where you, where you dive inside. It feels like you're floating through your own brainwaves and you can see them visualized in front of you in the VR headset. And then they were projecting that out so that other people could experience that too. Holy shit. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All kinds of of new artistic risks being taken. And using oh, science. Oh, wow. That's really cool. So they were somehow basically recording the brainwave activity from your own head and then visualizing it in a way that you and everyone else around you could kind of share an experience of your brain activity. Yes, that that's correct. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this woman, Dr. Catherine Bruner and her partner, Oliver, they were exploring this new, ex- you know, experiment of what this could look like this new artistic exploration and story they're developing a whole story around it wow yeah that's crazy what did it do for you like when you when you put on the headset and when you were experiencing that what was going through your head that's funny because it's like what was going through your head what was actually going through my head and back to the rest of the world there was a lot going on. Yes. It, I wanted more of it. It just felt too short. And I, you know, I really can't wait to see what they come up with as they progress their story. Oh, man. What that, else did you get to experience that was pretty notable or, or really interesting there? There were some amazing panels. I mean, Benjamin and Daniel have set up such an incredible conference. You know, they use this historic theater, the Delamar, for all of the keynotes. I got to give a keynote. It's a huge stage, an audience that seats 600 people. I love people coming in, having conversations in the lobby, going back in. You know, there was just so much conversation around VR and the potential and so many languages spoken. Like you were saying, Kelly, people are coming from all over Europe. Everyone speaks three to five languages. So I would just hear, you know, broken language and then sort of come back to English and Dutch. And it was just such a... like a beautiful orchestra of sounds and ideas coming together 
something, it felt a bit more international than other things that I've been to. Were there any particular themes or like topics of conversation that came up a lot in those, across those different panels? Yes, there were. There definitely were. I mean, uh, one was climate change. And okay. this is something Michelle Rayock, one of the programmers from the Venice Film Festival, I was on a panel that he moderated with some other great storytellers. And he was talking about, you know, can we be meeting in the future in VR, actually? Can we be meeting in some of these social platforms? Like, I've been working a lot with High Fidelity, you know, and of course, mm -hmm. we could be meeting in there. And there are some others as well that we could be exploring as virtual storytellers and perhaps cutting down on airplane travel. Travel costs or mm -hmm. just energy usage in general. Yeah, yeah. When, yeah, and the toll that has on our environment. So that was a, that was a conversation. Oh, and Venice was flooding. Oh, yes. right. So that was like a. I was reading about. <laughs> that was a big part of the conversation. Why is that part of? What are they going to do with VR? Just the fact, <laughs> like about that. That's a, that's a great question, right? Well, I mean, they could at least start to hold some of their meetings in VR. <laughs> they showed footage. I remember catching this on the news. There was like an image of their of one of the places where they have their, you know, I don't know if it's part of the mayor or other part of government, but, you know, you could see where they're gathering to make important decisions for their community and, and their, um, I don't know, <laughs> you know, uh, the, the kinds of conversations that would happen um, through the government, wherever they yeah. meet in Venice. I didn't know yeah, that like they had meetings space for that. Like a, but um, state meeting house or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. They have yeah. one of those, I guess, in Venice, and it was totally flooded. And they'd actually apparently been talking about climate change like a week prior, and they oh my God. had voted something against it. And then, and then like all of their desk papers were like left on the. It's a great oh, image. Geez. I'm just trying to describe it, you know, but there was like three feet of water and like oh, yeah. leftover strewn papers on the desks. It's actually super scary and it's very sad. Like, so obviously you've been to Venice because you've been to the Venice Film Festival, Kira. Have you been to Venice, Jake? I have not. You got to go because it's going under. <laughs> I I wish I went when I was younger. Um, I wish I had gone recently or like can go before anything more major happens because mm -hmm. I don't like my memory isn't that great. But honestly, it, it's been, I mean, it's been flooding and having issues for a long time. Right. So Certainly. it's only, it seems to me like it's only a matter of time before some more serious things. I mean, they're already happening. Yeah. Places like that and the, the Maldives as well. Yeah. Just not going to be around forever. Yeah. All of these coastal cities. I mean, even Amsterdam is below sea level. I was encountering that fact from a lot of native Amsterdam locals. Oh. They were telling me this, we're below sea level, but our dams keep the water out. Oh. So, I mean, I was going over canals and having a lot of flashbacks to Venice, remembering how I was yeah. carrying equipment over the canal bridges. Amsterdam's built differently. These streets are wider, right. so it's <laughs> easier to haul your equipment around. But the proximity to water was so breathtaking and beautiful and awe-inspiring i can only imagine the heartbreak that the venetians are facing by having to cope with their beloved city underwater so yeah. it's it's really that was really interesting and to talk about the potential for vr you know what if we were to have a conference what if we were even to just together for a day to discuss some of these issues what about you know networking in vr and fundraising in vr i think women in xr has done some pitches in social vr platforms before Maybe there could be more of that going forward. Yeah, Maybe we take your podcast virtually. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, I think that's, yeah. that's really what we would like to do or one of the things we'd like to do. Well, and it's like what you were saying here about what we were both saying about this 
this conference, VR Days, I mean, it's so beneficial, but it's so inaccessible for most people to go. Um, just the the cost of travel and all of that. And th- there's a lot of things that could be done virtually in a virtual world. I mean, it's, it, given the fact that that's literally the industry that we're pitching and trying to promote, <laughs> wouldn't we want to use that? That's true. I hope that, I don't know if it came up in conversation, but um, I hope people are capturing Venice in 360 and like doing other types of modeling it's you know like what they had done for the um oh god i'm blanking uh notre dame Mm -hmm. you know how they had like captured it so they could rebuild it all virtually i hope people are doing that as well i hope so as well still do like virtual city tours in the near future or you know 50 years from now when when a lot of it is completely transformed yeah yeah i mean i think that there's a lot of cases like that where we wish now that we could go back and see things like if they hadn't done that for for Notre Dame I mean it was it's already so sad but now they can actually rebuild it let alone uh you know I'm sure that there are virtual spaces you can you could explore as well mm-hmm. um in the case of Venice well maybe you can't rebuild it where it was or maybe you can't you know like maybe they build up that's what Seattle did Seattle has a whole underground Kira, I forget. Have you been to Seattle? I have. It's an it's an incredible city. It's beautiful. I love it. Um, have you ever done the underground tour? I did not get to go on the underground tour, but I remember climbing your very steep hills. Yes, that's true. It's it's very hilly. <laughs> I feel like two things I didn't expect when I moved to Seattle is how hilly it is, because you think of that for San Francisco, but not Seattle. Also, how big skiing is here. I had no idea. There's a huge skiing culture here, and like, I didn't know you've that. Got a number of good resorts all within really close proximity. Yeah, to the city. yeah. They Anyways, also, I heard it yeah. called the City of Seven Hills before. So, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> There's more than seven. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> have you ever tried Feels bike, like it. biking or walking them? Because yeah. it's really rough. Um, so uh, there's an underground tour here uh, where at one point Seattle went under water as well. And so they had to build above it. They had like ladders going from level two to level one. So they were like starting to build on top. And you can actually tour part of the old underground, like the old city streets of Seattle. It's super cool. It's like one of those, you know how some touristy things are worth it. That is worth it far more than going to the Space Needle for sure. Well, the next time I need to go underground there. We need to make sure we're documenting Venice. There's like so many. Yeah. Right. Lots of lots of possibilities for documentarians and storytellers to preserve the world that we love. Uh, yeah. I know. So that it seems like the the central sort of theme that I'm getting from this this conference and this whole conversation is like we really need to be embracing the technology in ways to better use the resources we already have, whether that's preserving the environment that is changing rapidly or using less resources to have future conferences or more networking opportunities or opening up the accessibility to festivals like this and other sorts of things. Yeah, I think there was there, nothing will ever replace being in the same room with people. You know, it's always special to get to share a physical space with someone and make real eye contact with them and be in the moment. That's never going to go away. It's why we're drawn to concerts with our favorite musicians. You know, there's something that takes over and it's why we're drawn to going to the theater and ballet. There's something that I think affects us emotionally, physically, spiritually, and that's from being in that united place. But we are working in a place where we can get 
really close to doing some very transformative things and giving someone really special feelings and emotional experience that they can walk away with. So I think that we can embrace the technology that we're using and imagine what a conference could look like in VR, what just a part of a conference could look like. It would be great to see all of these amazing festivals and conferences just dedicate one panel that takes place in VR or one sort of breakout session where we brainstorm together about how to make our industry better. I was also on a panel talking about women in XR and fundraising and what that's like as a woman in this landscape. I think it's hard for any person. It's additionally hard, I think, for a woman or a person of color. So I think that there are, again, other things that we need to think about how we can change our industry for the better while we're still in a nascent stage and we have an opportunity to make things more equitable. How can we make sure that underrepresented voices are getting their chance to pitch and be in the room with some of these great funders and tech companies? How can we make sure that when they get into a deal that they are respected and taken care of in ways that they should be as a creator or a, you know, a leading artistic voice? So those are things that I think will only come again with practice and probably by the industry making mistakes and then we learn better. But you know, can we make the fewest mistakes possible and make sure that everyone's been being treated respectfully and pushing the industry forward together. I always think of, you know, just to pull in a water metaphor, rising tide lifts all boats. So how can we be doing that together? I love that metaphor. Yes. And this is super important to me. It's one of the reasons I actually love the industry and I'm attracted to it is that it is in a lot of ways a potential for a brand new start. And you already see in a lot of the XR types of situations, whether it's conferences, panels, et cetera, that women are being more involved. I think there's still a lot of work to be done for people of color, but like we're trying. Um, there's, like I said, lots of work to be done, but the potential is there. And actually, we were just having a conversation with this woman, Evie Powell, which was um, one of our previous episodes, and she was making a comment about how like, it's just easier to not have to fix things. Like, once you've set up a culture, it's harder to dismantle it, right? Like, you you can, and you can work hard to do that and figure it out. But, I mean, we're seeing that happen in Hollywood. Like, it's kind of, it's, like, broken because it had this culture set up. And now and now there's, like, a lack of trust. And there's they're, they're trying to fix things. But it's it's kind of a disaster. And with XR, we have this opportunity to set it up properly. Like you're saying here, I mean, you, it's not going to be perfect. We're going to make mistakes and learn from them, but how perfect can we make it? Um, because it, it will make everything easier for us. Like you said, with the, with the analogy of the, the high tide. So Jay, you were talking about something recently, how like all of the, uh, let's say it's like something like Altspace or or some form of social VR, like they're all cross-platform right now. And Kira, what you were mentioning about like personal connection in face-to-face uh, -face will never go away. And that's not the point of XR. It's not to, to replace it. Um, but I love how you had brought up, Jay, just like all of these types of technologies are merging with cross-platform. And there was a part of me that thought like, oh, that's just temporary until everyone mm. gets onto VR. But I think that you're onto something and you're right. And this is a lot of what you're working in, Kira, as well, which is like, how do you get 
people to constantly be in different types of worlds and and unite them. Like in the case of this conference, how can you have it be virtual, but also have people in person? And then how would you connect those people? And I know that's some of the stuff that you've done with your with your theater work as well. Um, so I think that's a really a really interesting topic. Yeah, it, it's the conversation topic we we've kept on coming across is just how much of those experiences that is, is it actually going to replace? And I think the whole cross platform element is just that people are always going to be stepping into these sorts of varying degrees of artificial or, or virtual experiences, whether that's partially integrated with the world or they're just dropping into some sort of meetup with friends uh, for a moment, or maybe their entire workday is in virtual reality. Um, or maybe they're completely, they're having some sort of immersive experience and you want to be com- like 100% separated from awareness of, you know, real regular life around you. So it's just uh, people, I feel in the industry often like to feel like we're trying to completely replicate all of these real world experiences to a degree that we can just replace uh, or substitute. But I feel like the the long-term path is really just very tight integration throughout all of those different levels of immersion and levels of reality. They are levels. I think you're onto something there, Jay. I agree. Hmm. So what did you talk about in your keynote? You don't have to you don't have to redo the whole keynote Can for us here. Yeah, but actually if you could, that'd be great. <laughs> it's 17 minutes. <laughs> I have it like timed. Um, it's what? amazing. It was so I talked about my storytelling principles and how I've applied them to all kinds of installations that I've built from AR through VR. And those are some of the same things that I care a lot about from agency to how you view your audience. I like to think of them as a player, and I think it's really important to define their role inside of the experience, to just working with diverse groups of people, having diversity on your team, having diversity in front of the camera. All of those things matter to me. Telling a story, making sure there's some kind of structural story, even if it's loose, but there's some kind of Act one to act three. Those are things that I applied in Run In and Love Seed and Cardboard City and other experiences that I've consulted on. Those are things that matter to me. So I talked about those. And then I talked a lot about what I'm envisioning for the future of bridging all of these worlds, these levels of realities, as Jay was saying, in the XR VR theater that I'm working on, bridging these live and virtual audiences together. It was actually really cool. I mentioned High Fidelity, the platform that we're using for the VR theater. And there were two people, I mean, it sounded like a little group, but it it, it looked like a, a few people and they shrieked, you know, with, che- with cheer and joy <laughs> when I mentioned High Fidelity during my keynote. And I thought, wow, there must be people that are very familiar with this platform. And I got to meet them later. I know them by their avatar name because I've, I've, interacted with them and seen them before in VR in high fidelity. They had come to an improv show that I ran with some of my colleagues from the Alive and Plastic Land team. And then they also came to our Love Seat performance. And they were so excited about what we were doing with VR and theater. They have now felt inspired to make their own production. They're going to do a kind of take on Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol story with Ebenezer Scrooge and do like a twist uh, satire on Silicon Valley. Oh, oh that's great. <laughs> that sounds, I'd watch that for sure. Right? We'll have to get their information. 
Yeah. I love when you can see kind of the, the, the trail of inspiration that happens. And then you look down the road and people are doing these things. And you're like, ah, I remember where, like yeah. how you got there. <laughs> yeah, I had where really, I started. It all started yeah. in social VR together. <laughs> yeah. I had a weird vision when you said they shrieked at you mentioning high fidelity because I was thinking about like, you know, how somebody is giving a talk and they'll say like, oh, you know, like something about New York, any people in the audience from New York and everyone's like, yeah, or like with a college <laughs> so people, anyone from, you know, Rhode Island University or whatever. It was like, yeah. And then I'm thinking like, oh, my God, that's going to be the future, but it's going to be like what? virtual platform you're from or something like that oh your favorite virtual world no it was amazing (laughs) i was like wow people are familiar (laughs) with my work or they're a fan of something i've done or you know they're a fan of high fidelity that's it was very very cool and then to get to meet them in real life i felt again it's very special when you get to know an avatar and you have a conversation with them and then you meet them in real life it's happened for me because i first met the team from high fidelity on their platform in VR through their avatars. And then I got to meet them at their headquarters. And I already felt like I knew them. There's this kind of built-in respect and understanding that just happens. It's really lovely. Speaking of avatars, you've done research. I know a lot of a lot of various research, but I think you did some research with avatars. Is that right? Yeah, we did. Yeah, my Live on Plastic Land team and I, we wrote a paper about it. Alive in Plastic Land is uh, basically uh, two other gentlemen and myself. That is Alex Coulomb, who runs a design firm in New York City called Agile Lens, and David Goshfeld, who is an adjunct professor at NYU. And Alex was in conversations with High Fidelity to explore doing something that would combine performance and their social VR platform. And he brought me in to direct a what turned into a case study for High Fidelity. And at first that was basically internal and we explored what kinds of avatars were helpful for performers so that they could have realistic and truthful performances and be able to emotionally connect with each other. And so we explore different types of avatar designs through that and also a variety of different types of acting performances from a television scene to improvisation. And then that led to pitching an idea to High Fidelity to actually do a live improv show as well as run an improv class. And I brought on uh, an old colleague of mine going all the way back to actually elementary school who first taught me improv. And I brought him in to help me run an improv show, an improv class in social VR. Yeah. Um, awesome. That improv class looked fucking hilarious, <laughs> by the way. Yeah. It's like um, nobody listening knows what the fuck I'm talking about. But it's like <laughs> if you were to look at it, I watched the um, – it was like a trailer essentially for the improv class. Mm. And it's like you have this – I remember one specific image, which was like a giant woman taking care of like a miniature man and being like, my baby. (laughs) (laughs) That was an excellent moment. Yes. uh, Tracy, who was uh, on the more petite side, um, on the shorter range of our actual physical actors, scaled herself to be this enormous giant. And Ray Cordova, who is one of our tallest actors, shrunk himself down to be this tiny flying baby. Um, that actually came from the show, <laughs> the show that we did live. But uh, it was a, a well uh, tweeted and gifed moment. 
Oh my god! So, yeah. what makes it? What makes it? What is different about um, using avatars in virtual reality for acting and performing, or in this sort of improv setting, versus a traditional um, animated? sort of avatar that you would have in video games or other settings like that? I mean, in both senses, you are using a form of motion capture to connect the performer's body to the body of their avatar. So you're putting different, you know, tracking points on their body so that that is also represented truthfully, as truthfully as you can. Uh, in live performance, because we're, we've also been putting the actors into headsets, like we also just did recently in, in my production company's uh, premiere of this show that we did in Venice called Love Seat, the actors are actually in headsets performing inside a virtual world so they can see each other virtually through their virtual bodies as well as see a virtual audience. So what's neat about this is now we're able to expand the concept of theater and take it into an even wider audience to reach mm -hmm. a wider audience and into a, a kind of another dimension. Right. Yeah. So what were you finding, like going back to the beginning of that research, you start to get involved in finding the right avatars. What does that research even look like? Where did you begin? We started with looking at the kinds of assets that were available to us and then also custom designing some avatars. So there were ideas that I had. I, I had a a sense that perhaps actors don't necessarily need to have photorealism to connect with each other. So they don't need to, to look exactly as they do in the real world, right? They don't have to have a totally matched representation of their face and their body to be able to connect with another partner. And that actually, if we try a more abstract version of an avatar, something that has even less facial detail, maybe it doesn't even have eyes, can they connect with each other anyway? And this is something that we see in traditional forms of theater when actors are embodying things like puppetry or clown or mask. They're not always represented in the form of a human, but there's a sensibility of a human-like nature because that character obviously still has emotions and an, and an arc and a journey that they're going to go through. And those are things that you're endowing with human nature, but they may still be represented in an abstract form. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like uh, a lot of the film history of like Pixar, um, where they've been experimenting with different types of animated characters, but that have what would seem like very limited emotional expression from a human perspective and audience can still connect with them. Totally. Exactly. Yeah. It made me think of, there's this book called Understanding Comics. Anyone? Anyone? Understanding <laughs> um, <laughs> it's about the development of, of comic books. I, I highly suggest it. It's super fascinating for anyone like interested in in storytelling mm -hmm. and and you you don't have to be interested in comic books because one of the things it talks about is the range of abstraction and and this and on a scale of like photorealistic to so abstract you actually can barely tell what it is. Sometimes it just comes down to what what type of art form you want, but that ultimately if it if it had to I would say suggest something it it was that you do not need to be photorealistic. You need to be something beyond too abstra abstract that you don't even understand what it is, but that mm -hmm. you really don't need a lot because people like to fill in that blank. And if you make it photorealistic, they can't connect with it potentially as mm -hmm. well because they're not filling in their own person. So to get a little bit more specific here and dig down into that 
um, when you're when you're crafting those sort of avatars and you're having actors embody them and, and give them life and movement in a in a production, um, if you can simplify one down so much but still have that emotional expression that it's capable of, what are what are some of the key like pieces that really um, still enable a character or an avatar um, or a person in VR to have that expression ability if it's not necessarily um, eyes or like what are those common sort of characteristics? You know, I feel like we're still experimenting with this right now. This is such a new medium and form, and there are a lot more points, I think, that we can be adding to this continuum of exploration of how to be able to figure out what this form actually looks like. So, so far, the the types of avatars that uh, my team has designed, uh, both with the research that I did for High Fidelity with the Alive and Plastic Land colleagues, and then also in what I've been doing with Double Eye and Love Seat, what I'm mm-hmm. finding is that there is a representation of a human body, but it's mm-hmm. not it's not exactly in the total dimensions of the human body. Um, there's a representation of a head, and the from that point forward, you know, other features are kind of further pronounced. So whether we're looking to commedia, you know, from the Italian design of masks to give us further influence, or we're looking to another type of history in the, in the theatrical tradition, there are different places we can be pulling from. There's yeah. a um, a New York City designer, Jeremy Thompson, that helped, helped me design an abstract avatar where we really just use paint and brush strokes on top of a, the shape of a human body. And that was one of the types of avatars that we designed for the initial case study. Hmm. Hmm. And so how did you test? Because it sounds like one of the things I was talking about related to understanding comics, you also had that hypothesis and I think came to that conclusion as well, which is that you don't need to be photorealistic, like you said. And so when you were going through testing these avatars, I mean, how did you even test them? How did you determine or prove that hypothesis? Sure. We we brought each pair of actors that did a scene together would try on every single avatar and do their scene. And then we would ask them questions at the end and ask them about, you know, where they felt most truthful and resonated the most. And the majority of them landed on the side of the more abstract or mask-like avatars. In some cases, they felt that after they used those avatars, if they then went back to a more semi-realistic avatar, sort of something we're more uh, comfortable seeing in the game world where it's been 3D designed, but it's on, it's, you know, coming off the shape of a human, or maybe there's been um, some photogrammetry involved, and then that's been incorporated into a 3D design of a human. It's not a total, it's not just a total picture of their, of their body. It's not a complete photorealistic photogrammetry piece. And for, for people listening who don't quite know what that means, right? You're putting a person inside, um, you know, a camera rig of like maybe a hundred cameras that are facing at them. So you're getting like every single, you know, detail of their facial structure and their hair, you're getting all of this information and that's getting composited together into this three-dimensional asset that you can then use in the story. And either you're adding rigging on top of that, or you're doing videogrammetry or volumetric capture, where you're then also, you know, having their their human movement matched with their human capture 
connected together. Um, but yes, basically we then asked a series of questions to those performers and they, uh, they landed on the side of finding that the more abstract resonated with them. That's so interesting that it was, I would have thought that I, I didn't think about asking the actors how they felt. I was thinking like, oh, how does an audience mm-hmm. respond to it? But that's super fascinating to think that the actors themselves had these great opinions about how yeah. they could best perform and feel the most real. And they also have to interact with each other. So it, like, it, kind of, it makes sense. Yeah, it totally <laughs> makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, they're uh, the ones that are, you know, have to connect with each other and yeah. feel present in the scene. So what's giving them the most presence? And I think there there's a huge amount of disconnect. You know, they're they're in a virtual world where they go to reach down and touch a sofa and that sofa doesn't exist. There's yeah. no there's no, you know, tactile feedback for them that they're used to having. So and the same thing if they go to like punch a character or, t- or caress someone's face, they no longer have that information anymore. If they do that in fact, you know, 9 times out of 10 the way that we space them in the studio, they're not in any physical proximity with each other anyway. And if they were that close, they're probably going to totally miss each other and find that they've like turned in a totally different direction because they've teleported or used some kind of locomotion that took them in a different direction. So they're not even facing each other in the scene anymore. So all of these things can add into uncanny Valley for an actor. And that's a, that's very interesting to me. I was going to say, it seems like it's an uncanny valley thing where like, we're not, it's not quite close enough um, or convincing enough to feel like, oh, well, this is just the real me that is being portrayed here. It's, it doesn't go that far. So it just feels off innately. So going in the opposite direction seems to work better. I felt that way. And I think that's something that I then carried over into run in with Intel studios, because again, you're getting, you're getting a human capture but you can take this abstract form that's coming from a point cloud mm-hmm. where all of those points may or may not be completely, you know, connected in the way that we might be used to if we're looking for something that's super photorealistic. By having something that's come across as a more abstract form, we're able to then change that and play with that. And you still feel the presence. A lot of people said to me, oh, I love what you did with with the capture and that's, you know, of course we're working with an incredible shader artist who's taking the capture and then transforming that even more beautifully into something even more abstract Mm -hmm. and less human like, but because you have the sense of the human dancing in front of you, you still feel like you're able to relate to that person and that body in, Mm -hmm. in the same world and same moment. I didn't even think of when I was watching that experience, um, I didn't think of it from the perspective of, uh, it was a choice basically to avoid having that sort of uncanny valley of these people look pretty real because it was a volumetric capture, but it's just off because they're models. When you use the point cloud, it looks a lot more artistic and just interesting. And you're focused, I think more on the movement than the details of the people that are being recorded. Exactly. And I think that's what you hope for, especially in a dance piece to just concentrate on the movement and try to get someone else to feel free that they can actually move as well. So if they're concentrating on that dancer and just being in the moment with them, getting into a flow state or a sense of rhythm, then that's all they're looking for is to embody that moment in, in movement. Mm -hmm. Hmm. That's actually an interesting uh, insight from that is that it allowed you to focus on the movement rather than um, 
than the the human details, I guess. Um, whereas if it was just a recording of a bunch of dancers, you would have to still um, deal with more of those details of those actors, like face or facial expressions and just things that you um, that you could kind of gloss over in this and um, create more of a sort of like moving painting. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. So we talked about some of that research with the avatars. That seems like in a, in a large part, it was, it was the beginning of a, a greater journey um, where you continued. I don't know if it was continuing research with High Fidelity specifically, but you've continued to experiment, it seems, with different forms of expression because ultimately it has led you to run in, which was, um, you know, uh, won the juror award at, uh, or the jury award at South by Southwest this year. And then you had love seat, which is, um, was, was it premiering at Venice film festival? Yeah. Yeah. And both of those are completely different. They're, you know, from this past year, but, uh, just to give everyone a sense, and I know we'll get into more detail here, but run in, like you said, is a volumetric capture and it's basically a music video and and something that encourages people to dance within that music video, so it seems. And then um, with Love Seat, it is a live performance. And so you have people who are performing live on stage, like any type of theater experience, except that they also have VR headsets on their face. And at the same time, there is a virtual performance. And so, and that's what we were just talking about, where they are essentially translated into avatars. And so you can kind of choose between do you don a headset and experience this virtual experience, or do you see the experience live? Um, I hope I did some justice to those. <laughs> you like, did great there. Yeah. Okay. So, those are two completely different pieces. They're experimenting with different types of of expression and storytelling, technical approaches, all of that. And so what I'd love to know is like, where did you go? So when you when you start off with this research with the avatars and all of that, you, it has led you on this journey to those types of experiments. And so what did that journey look like for you? What else were you starting to discover and how did you start to get into these experimental spaces that Love Seat and Run In uh, works through? I mean, I think right now in this industry, we're in a very experimental place. And I think, you know, certainly some people have been in this space much longer. You look at Nani de la Pena and her history and contribution to this industry. Um, I think that, uh, you know, an, an incredible research-based universities, like what Stanford has been doing and contributing to the field. So I think if you're not experimenting and kind of adding to that vocabulary, taking risks and trying different things out, then, then maybe, you know, it's not going to further the medium as quickly as we could. So I really value all the people that are taking risks and trying things and trying to experiment with different technologies and practices and also, you know, try to embody different messages and pieces. I think if we take the same storytelling principles and the same technology that we're used to, because that's what we've been doing in animated films, that's what we've been doing in documentaries, then we're missing out. We're working in a three-dimensional medium. And I think that's where it's especially exciting for us to be trying something different. So I tend to work in a really experimental place. And um, I think that, you know, people have all kinds of different approaches of, of what is best for them and the types of stories that they want to be telling. Um, but, 
you know, getting to work with Intel Studios and Reggie on this very first piece, the first creative piece that the studio produced, um, the, the largest cast that they had filmed at the time, um, the, the first virtual reality production for them, the first music video for them. There are a lot of firsts there. So there was a lot of experimentation. And I had this blocking plan to shoot all 13 performers at once, which is not so typical because in most of volumetric capture studios, you want to concentrate on one performer at a time so that you get the most visual information and you don't have any occlusion, meaning no cameras are, you know, the movement that's intersecting between the cameras, um, shadows, things that are being created. You don't have as many difficulties or challenges that you might work with in post. But I had a theory that if I put all the dancers together at once, they would be able to feed off of each other's emotional information. Even if we didn't take that exact export as one piece together, but we would actually segment it and separate those dancers out so that they could be placed all over the Rubik's Cube designed space that would build throughout the piece. So that was new. That was a new type of experiment and risk that was taken. And I felt that, that it, um, that it worked. So that was exciting for me. And, and I think for the rest of the team to try that. And basically, you know, I was, Run-In was a, a long project for me. That production was about a year of my time. So I met Reggie at Sundance. I pitched him this idea and to work with this choreographer that I admired in the New York City landscape. Her name is Ani Taj and she runs a company called The Dance Cartel. And then Reggie also knew another choreographer that he's collaborated with for many years, Amy O'Neill. And so we brought those two choreographers together and pitched this production to Intel. And so that was exciting to get to see something that had so many different components that would then get taken off. And, and to me, it was quite experimental, but also, also, you know, proved to be very enjoyable for a lot of audiences. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. And props to you for taking the initiative to, to pitch that type of, of experiment because it's probably, as you said, I mean, it's, it's risky to experiment and it's, it's really difficult to, to kind of sell people on <laughs> trying to do that. <laughs> yeah, I really like the, the, the idea of having everybody perform together and, and dance in the same space and then separating them out, but you still, you still have their sort of like live connection that they all had and that shared energy. And then it comes through in the video in post after the fact. Thank you. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I think the dancers also enjoyed that too. That's something that's a little bit rare to do on every volumetric stage. Intel has the largest volumetric stage in the world. So that was, you know, we could have fit another 20 dancers in there. Yeah. So that was really exciting that there, there were no limits of the amount of cast that we could put in there. Yeah. Do you think that that type of inspiration for you comes from your theater background? Because I imagine theater, uh, I don't imagine, I know <laughs> theater, theater is uh, based in people feeding off of each other in a lot of ways, yeah. whether that's actually on stage or even just like the mental preparation people do together um, as a team behind stage. Uh, and so do you think that played a large part for you going into this? I think so. Yes, I do. I think that emotional connection and being able to make eye contact with people and, and find a sense of presence, which I think is what we're trying to do in other ways in VR as well, 
to create these Nani talks about embodied moments, you know, embodied experiences. I think that that helps by putting as many humans together and, and letting them live inside a moment together. I really believe in social connections and I think that that's really important. So that's another reason that I'm exploring the social VR space, mm-hmm. which is, a, you know, an incredibly exciting space and also challenging space to be in right now where it's so, again, if we think VR isn't defined, you know, social interactions in social VR is also not very defined right now in a space where we don't have human bodies. And that also comes into play from having worked on run-in where again, you know, this sort of question of how do we respect another person's body in the space? If there's a dancer and I want to dance close to that dancer, but that dancer is essentially hologram, how do I respect their space? Because I want to give someone agency and freedom to let them teleport all around the space and get close to people. I think in the real world, we know it's impolite to try to stand on top of someone's body or to try to um, intersect, try to like stick your hand through their torso. You you wouldn't try to do that normally, right? <laughs> I, 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 mean, I hope so. I agree, yeah. <laughs> Generally. I think, I think this is like accepted social behavior. Uh, <laughs> These are norms. <laughs> this is research that I haven't done, but just a general, a just general. <laughs> I think you're on to yeah, something here with those thoughts. Very... Yeah. No, but actually it's funny because we're laughing but yet people do that in social vr because they're like whoa i can do it i can stick my hand through your torso it's so weird right (laughs) they wave their hand in your head exactly right yeah yeah but if we don't think about you know what is the effect that that has on the person we're doing that to if it's a friend maybe that's socially acceptable like we both accept that we're going to stick our hands through each other's torsos but (laughs) And that could be mutually agreed upon. But if it's a stranger, and in a lot of these social worlds, people are strangers, they are people we've never met, then we have to set up a new set of rules. I think a lot of these platforms are trying to do their best at reminding each other, you know, create a sort of space bubble. You can set your own space bubble of how far someone can come to intercept in your personal space. The fact that we actually have to define what our personal space is, is really interesting. So I was thinking about that as well while designing run-in, like what is the appropriate personal space for those dancers and what happens when you get close to those dancers and yet at a dance party, you might want to get close to somebody else and dance with them and try their move and copy their dancing and see how you flow around their dance move. I think those are all the kinds of beautiful things that we discover at dance parties mm-hmm. in, in these you know joyous atmospheres, which is what run-in was meant to be. So how do we maintain that sense of freedom and choice and yet also respect someone's body? And that basically what we designed there was that when you got close to a dancer, their voxels, because Intel's system is based on these, you know, three-dimensional pixels or voxels, that could we could design them so that they could react to your movement. That was one way that we did it. I also filled their body with a sense of light. And that way, as you got close to them, it's as though they had an energy, they possessed something. So you knew you were kind of in their field. Yeah. And that kind of very abstract feedback seemed to help people to huh. also, you know, get close to them, but also be respectful of them. Okay. So it's like an effort to try to translate some of the unconscious body cues that we 
translate in real life, but that kind of get missed most of the time in virtual environments. Yes. Really interesting. When you were approaching directing run-in, you said you had, this was like basically born from you, that you had this idea, this own, like dream, essentially, like literally and <laughs> metaphorically of, of run-in. What was different between what you started with and what you ended with? Like that type of interacting with bodies and having those bodies light up or having the voxels react, was that something you envisioned or was that like learned throughout the process? The voxels reacting to your movement was something that evolved. I mean, that that came pretty early on. I was hyper aware of the fact that I wanted to make sure that we could be close to dancers, but respect their bodies. And that's something that I would continually bring up during the process, also being the only woman in, you know, in a lot of these um, post-production meetings uh, and designing times. That's something that I was very concerned about. Like, how do we honor someone's body, especially thinking about women in this industry? Like, what is the, what is the right thing in, in this, in this potential made up surreal dance world? where there are no rules, but how do we establish some kind of very simple rules that you're not even aware of, but we're going to set the design principles that way to make sure that there is a sense of respect. Mm. So that was a, that was a tenant for me going in from the very start, but how I got there took time. And that's something that I worked out with a UX consultant that I brought on the piece, um, Kent Rahman, who's a UX designer at ThoughtWorks. Mm. And he helped me work through my process and, and um, I came up with a, you know, a number of different approaches that I then brought to the, to the developers and designers of how we could essentially make sure that we were respectful to these dancers and their bodies. Yeah. I love that. I love that you brought in a UX designer to consult on something like that, because I think, you know, one of the, the tough challenges of working on storytelling in VR is that it's like who is even on the team because we're combining <laughs> so many different types of things. And we also, a lot of what we're creating or like in your case, this, this type of experience didn't exist before. And so who are the right people to consult? Like what skill sets do you actually need? Yeah. And I love that. I never thought about it. I mean, I think UX obviously makes sense when you have interaction, but in this case, it's a, it's a special type of interaction. You're not like, let me click on this button or go through this portal or whatever. It's, it's, it's an interaction that is being suggested, but not, not actually happening. If that, if I, it's hard to phrase. Um, and so I think that that's really cool that you brought in someone from UX to work on that. I think that's like really great advice for people. Yeah, I think UX is one of the most critical. UX, UI is so important, like on every VR team. Mm. That's something that I really stressed with Intel when they were, you know, putting everything together. I said a UX designer is really going to be very core and, and core to my process when I'm working on especially interactive VR, where the person that is embodying the experience, I like to think of them as a player and giving them an opportunity to play with the actual world and atmosphere mm -hmm. that something that they do, one of their actions actually has some kind of result mm -hmm. on the rest of the experience. So by making a choice that they, you know, for example, the experience starts in a, in a more photorealistic record store before you then transport, teleport into this dreamlike, surreal Rubik's Cube dance world that you haven't seen in your dreams, you know, this kind of magical world, 
as you get into that, you know, these sort of magical moments happen that you bring to life. There are these record bins that you take your your glow sticks essentially. And as you connect with them and drum on them and make beats with them, they come to life, they animate and change color. And that's an interaction that happens, you know, only based on your movement and you making a choice to interact with that object. Hmm. While we're on the topic of run-in, which was just, again, to come back to the you know, making sure the audience is with us because running is not, you know, it's, it's in festival rounds right now. Um, maybe like, we'll, we'll stay connected and we can maybe eventually it'll be on the store or something like that. And we can talk about how people can experience it. But right now we just have to talk in theory, um, for (laughs) everyone. And again, this is the one that was a music video, um, that was, uh, that was for Reggie Watts essentially. And, um, and then John Tejada, Reggie and John. Okay, got it. And um, and so they call themselves Wahata. Wahata. Oh, I saw that, and I was like, I don't know what that was. Okay, cool. Good to know. Um, so while what what were some of the other discoveries that you made working on this project? Because first of all, let me like plug something that you were not only the first female, but the first VR director to work in Intel's. Uh, volumetric capture the studio. largest yeah studio so uh <laughs> congratulations to you that's fucking awesome um and i'm sure everyone's like how did you pitch it like and tell us how to get into intel studio <laughs> maybe we'll maybe we'll come across that but um uh and and that's like 76 cameras i think i read right and a giant they have camera. even more now yes exactly oh and there like, are even more cameras installed now. That's insane. It's growing. It's yeah. <laughs> and it's like a giant stage. And you came in hot and you're like, not only am I going to tackle this whole volumetric capture thing with this giant stage, but I'm also going to come up with like new ideas about how to have everyone on the stage at the same time and how we're going to segment those people. Like you just seem like a total badass who's like got this all down, <laughs> but it's like you're experimenting with everything. So what were yeah. some of the other key areas that you came across in working with volumetric capture and just working on this project in general that were like big lessons and, and uh, experiments that you played around with or tests that you did? Sure. I mean, the I think the biggest one was I really wanted the player to have total agency to be able to teleport and go to the ceiling and dance on the walls. That comes from a love of musicals and watching Fred Astaire who danced on the ceiling um, and just always wanting to do something like that myself. So I thought if I can then give that superpower to somebody else and we can give superpowers to people in VR, then that would be amazing. But again, you know, what does that experience feel like will that make them nauseous? Will that make them feel completely disoriented? Will it be cool? Will they find that as cool as I think it is? And, you know, that comes back to my UX designer and other work that I've been doing, you know, with other developers in the field that have reminded me time and time again, this is about iteration. I actually think this is a piece about the VR development cycle that's very similar to theater. Theater takes a piece and workshops it and keeps reworking it until it gets right in front of an audience. It can take many years before a production even reaches Broadway. So the same thing in software development. And when we're working in VR, we're working with these game engines. You want to be putting 
person from your audience, from the demographic that you're hoping that you reach and seeing how they respond to the things that you're trying out. So teleporting to the ceiling, trying that out, that was something that I wanted to try that I hadn't built in an experience yet. And we tested it on people and the play test went really well. It was, ex- we struck a line where people felt the ceiling, I think, was was a pretty easy, like, oh my God, that's exciting. The walls were something on the line of, where am I? And <laughs> oh, it's really, it's really interesting. So it was that like moment of them feeling not safe, like we took yeah. them just past their threshold, <laughs> but then they got, that was interesting for them. So I thought that was like exactly striking that balance was exactly right mm-hmm. and exactly what's fun about VR, but also giving them the ability to choose to go there to those places. So if they discover it and that brings them joy, then they can keep doing that. But if that terrifies them, they can go back down to the floor where they started from and feel safe again. And I think that's really important, like not forcing to put a player in that position, but empowering them to choose to go to that place themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Can I, I wanted to ask a specific question about how you or between you and the UX designer that you brought on, um, how did you kind of tackle that interaction challenge? And just figuring out how to do that properly um, and then and then working with people. Like, what was that process like? So that was something that I worked through theoretically with Kent. And then that was developed by these developers in California. And that process, we actually, um, we wanted to start with doing that early on in the process. But that, that piece got worked on a little bit later. So mm. uh, the playtesting for that was was, you know, like just in time. Um, and there, you know, I think that when you're developing a mechanic that is risky like that, you want to put a lot of playtesting and iteration around it. And we got lucky that it worked the minute that we, that we put it into <laughs> testing. So yeah. ideally, ideally there would be more time to, to test it out with different users groups. And- exactly. Ideally, I think, you know, the, the approach that I like to have on most of my pieces is to take one of the hardest things or the thing that is the riskiest that you, that you're not sure will work. And you put that, you sort of load that at the front. Yeah. So to jump off of Runnin. So I wanted to take us back around to uh, to Venice, to the film festival there, where the you were... Love Seat. Le- yeah, Love Seat, where you're having an audience go through this uh, experiment that is basically like a mixed medium, right? There's a live performance and then a virtual performance as well. Can you kind of like take us through what that was like first for people that were experiencing it? Sure. We had an audience of 50 people in Venice each for each performance. And we ran a show for 10 days plus two days of previews. So essentially 12 days where a lot could go wrong because we were networking 13 computers, which is um, a challenge to do. Um, And then we were doing that while enabling uh, an international audience to attend through social VR. And we were doing all of this from a medieval island in Venice in the middle of a lagoon. (laughs) Um, So building a theater and networking 13 computers is hard anyway, but then sort of putting yourself in a place where things are very old, um, it just sort of adds other elements of, uh, of challenge to it. But our team did it beautifully. Um, We had three technical directors with us, in in Venice, which was really helpful to make sure that our actors were tracking and we were, you know, connecting to that that 
high fidelity platform beautifully every day. Um, and, uh, I, I was always felt like it was a miracle when the show ended and something horrible hadn't gone wrong because so much, there was just so many types of risks. And that's something that the programmers would say to us too. You know, it was, it was really one of the, the more technologically complex productions that was there. So basically our audience in Venice was, we were open to an audience of 50 people. And then we had four spots with VR headsets. And my goal was that some people might stay in VR the whole time, but they also might just share with their neighbor to just take a look in to see what that world looks like. They won't have a full experience, but they'll have a glimpse of that virtual world. So my goal was to actually sort of take the headset away from the audience to say, the entire audience is not dependent on experiencing what our actors are experiencing. There's another way for them to see inside this world where they're not going to be forced to have to have a headset to look inside the world. Someday, if we could put an audience of 50 in headsets, that would also be very cool. But the goal is not to limit ourselves to the limits of the technology. Because of Mm -hmm. course, each headset has to be powered by a computer each computer is represented by an avatar that's in that space. So mm-hmm. there's, we're kind of hitting, you hit it, you start to hit a bottleneck in there. And mm-hmm. I think that for an international audience that's logging in to see a social production, to engage with a social audience, have a social experience, um, just sorry, engage with an audience, engage with a community around them to experience something together, that's very cool. And they can be anywhere in the world. And then they're not limited by things like space or an actual Broadway theater. So there's all these different kinds of limits that we have between both mediums. And my goal was to take the limitless possibilities and combine them together. Hmm. So to recap, to make sure I understand, in this festival, at that point, you have people sitting without headsets watching the live performance. Mm -hmm. You also have some people in headsets watching the virtual performance. Are they in the same room together? Yes, they were. Okay. And then you also are projecting the virtual experience so that people who don't have a headset on not only see the live, but see what it looks like in yeah, the virtual Yeah, so you're experience. just watching the monitor of what they're experiencing. Okay. That's right. Um, okay. So, And then we also have a social audience gathering in social VR watching oh, from okay. their homes. And they could be watching in a headset or just from their PC desktop. Mm-hmm. How the heck did you like get into this position? Like unify well, all. First of all, like like you said, that's super technically complex. And it's funny to me, like thinking about this being in a quote unquote film festival. Like, was the film festival freaking out or were they excited? They're like, this isn't technically, it's not a short film, it's not a feature film. It's kind of like, you know, it's a VR thing, but it's also theater. You know, like what was that conversation like to just be like, to do this in a film festival. <laughs> so Venice has had a dedicated program for virtual reality that also has a competition lineup. And that's quite rare for an A-list film festival to have a dedicated program that also has a competition program. And that program for Venice has been running for three years. This was the third year. And that program is spearheaded by two programmers, Liz Rosenthal and Michelle Rayak. So they were they were knowledgeable of what I was doing with my colleagues in New York. They also knew that I really wanted to develop a full production, an original production, a scripted play. And 
they gave me this opportunity to be a part of the competition lineup. And I, we actually built this production very, very quickly. So they had attended one of the rehearsals that I was running with some improv work, which was super experimental and not quite what I was hoping for. Improv felt very, very risky. And so if we wanted to design moments in VR that are truly magical for for VR, for example, where someone grows to a really large avatar size, Mm -hmm. or to be able to have lighting cues and costume changes, that those things would be designed better in a scripted production. So I think there are possibilities for improv in the future, but for a premiere in a place like Venice, it felt that it would be quite exciting to be able to do something scripted where we could design around those special moments. And also I've been wanting to collaborate with Mac Rogers for a long time. So this felt like a great opportunity to do that. Mm, yeah. And so when when you got into this and you're doing the live performance, what were you observing uh, with in terms of the audience reactions? Yeah, what was the reception like? Towards reception that? in Venice was really interesting. I think that people are still trying to wrap their head around what this actually was for them. Were they seeing a theater production? Were they seeing a mixed media production? Where do we fit? And I, and I think that yeah. we are trying to understand that too. You know, do we fit into what you consider a theater that's mixing in technology? Or, you know, are we actually this kind of new thing, this VR theater? That's personally where I think we land. But I think everyone's going to come with a different approach about where they think we fit on the media landscape. And that's exciting that we, we maybe fit in different places or we don't exactly fit which is kind of neat. And so the audience was trying to wrap their head around, I think still, you know, what this experience was like for them. Um, Some people felt really touched by the experience because they felt like it was embodying things that were exploring loneliness and what that feels like to be in a world where you're trying to connect with someone, which is kind of interesting because then we're also using this technology, which is all about connectedness Mm -hmm. and having interactions and, and what that can play into your psyche and you know does that give you added feelings of emotional connection with people or do you feel even lonelier i think there's also possibilities for other kind of research to be there but in the meantime my focus is just creating meaningful content that people in social worlds and the real world can explore and then how do we get this connection between those two sets of audiences that's something that we didn't fully have time to develop we just couldn't get there we needed to build two lobbies basically and uh we just didn't we just ran out of time because we built this entire production so quickly in six weeks also building another another scene a whole lobby area would have been another challenge and we basically needed an additional mc to then kind of interact and greet those that virtual audience those uh virtual avatars so that's a, a hope that i have for future productions to bring the real world and virtual world audiences together through a social connection. But but lessons learned from the experience in the first part. So many lessons learned. Still (laughs) learning. We're still learning. Um, Did you talk to people? Did anyone experience both the live performance and then go back and do the VR performance as well? Yes, there are a handful. There was a German 
journalist and I can give you her name. And she had some, a very interesting set of interactions. She experienced it first live in Venice. And then she went back to Germany and tuned in from Germany while we performed again in Italy. And she watched wow. the whole show again from inside VR. And what did she have to say yeah, about her experiences? Really curious. Yeah, she had a lot of really great questions. She wrote an article that got reposted to No Proscenium. Mm. So there are two places to explore it on her blog and mm. also there. I think it's on, it's on Medium and it's called mm. Birds and Bees and Multiple, Multiple Realities uh, dash Love Seat at Venice VR. Mm. Did you get to talk with her personally or what were your feelings and takeaways, some of like the key things from what, what she wrote? I did talk to her personally. I got to talk to her in Venice actually act after she had already experienced it. And I think she was like working through her head, like maybe she'll tune in also when she gets home, mm -hmm. which of course is just another thing to figure out, you know, how you're going to log in and set up and, and have that additional experience. But she did. And I believe I even showed her backstage to take a look at our, you know, in, intense setup of many computers that are all logged in. Because in order for us to have different camera angles, we have to have multiple computers that are set up in order for us to be able to mix sound in our sound engineers, the chapter four team, they had to be logged in so that they could also be able to mix appropriately and hear the sound inside VR. In many ways, we ran two productions at the same time. We're running mm -hmm a live show with lighting cues for a real world audience yeah. and our actors are wearing costumes and they have real world blocking and then they have additional cues, design cues that are happening in the virtual world where set pieces are coming in from the virtual set that's been designed. Mm -hmm. But of course we also had to have a live set designed for the real world audience to interact with. So it was like having two shows and two design teams, <laughs> our stage manager in many ways, you know, she was, uh, she embodied two people and that was pretty incredible. How did you and the actors work through that challenge? I imagine they have not done something like that before. And if you look at pictures of this experience, you're seeing them on a stage in a pose with a headset on. It's like they have, they're basically blind and they have to like navigate this stage and the other actors that they're acting with on top of navigating the virtual world. So what was that like for them? And then also for you directing them? I can't speak for them, but I, I can, I can speak for my interaction with them and the, they're incredibly talented, all three of them. Um, I specifically looked for actors that had a great physical sense of working with their bodies, a great physicality and, and a sense of physical awareness so that they would start to understand that if their cord attached to their tower was getting taut, that they would have an understanding that they might, you know, pull that out and go totally dark. Um, mm -hmm. and that that would, you know, be a, a tricky thing to navigate. So yeah. the, so I worked with actors that would Ha have an innate understanding of how to work with their own bodies inside of this world. But absolutely, they learned all new skills, basically teleporting for their blocking, doing quick costume changes where they're, you know, selecting these different avatars that enable them to do this. They're learning, you know, Jen's character, Abby, had to fly a lot throughout the production. So she's learning how to use her controllers that enable her to fly. 
and hit blocking points while flying as well, which was incredible. Hmm. So, you know, normally when you're doing complex things and you have things like dance in a, in a show or a fight scene, you would do a fight call and a dance call here. We would have a flying call for Jen basically. And anything that they kind of wanted to practice that was technologically quite different than they would be doing in a regular play. They would do some, you know, a run through every day of those more technically complex moments, Mm -hmm. which I was really grateful that they wanted to do that and, and would also, you know, ask for extra time to practice those things. Um, Jonathan David Martin, who was in Warhorse, he has an innate sense of working with puppetry and experience on a, on a major professional level. And so he also carried that over. He'd also had some virtual reality experience before. So he, he learned very fast. Yeah. So what were, for you, uh, directing that, what do you feel like went right? And then also like maybe what I'll say went wrong, but just like you had already mentioned like some areas that you'd want to do better, such as the, you know, be creating connection between the two different types of audiences, the live and virtual. So I want to hear like what was going well, like you, you planned it, it was experimental, but it worked out. And then what, you know, it was kind of like, okay, we could, we could do this better next time. Sure. We, I mean, we wrote an entire stage management system to be able to, to call lighting cues and bring set pieces, fly them in and out from the stage, make things appear magically. So those things um, were very risky also for us to do in a short time frame, and they ended up working really well. So I think, you know, watching set pieces sort of float up from a stage and dissolve into a stage is pretty amazing and magical. And I think that mm-hmm. works really well. Jonathan's character, Bruce, like grows to a giant size and then he shrinks down to this teeny tiny size. And I think that worked really well. Uh, the audience responded. Those that saw it virtually or without a headset would say that, that that moment felt really special for them and like a great use of VR. You know, why would we do this in VR? Well, because you can do something like that. What human body could ever grow in size? We can't do that in the real world. We don't have mm-hmm. the physics to do that. So that was really, I think those were some great achievements that we were able to write the code in time and write the stage management panel to be able to make those things happen on the fly, um, timed and scripted, of course, but, you know, to be able to get all of those pieces working together was a lot of magic to pull off and mm-hmm. felt like a, a very rewarding contribution, I think, to what the future of VR theater can look like. Things that weren't going as right for us, um, you know, I think that there is more for us to develop in terms of lighting cues in the virtual world. Um, the way that our avatars, uh, when they enter the virtual theater, they would all kind of, there was like a little bit of a bottleneck where they would get stuck. And that's just, again, like iteration and feedback and playtesting that we didn't have time to do with a live audience before we got to Venice. Mm -hmm. So that's something that we were figuring out every day from a live show in, you know, in the kind of spotlight of being a piece in competition that was, uh, interesting for us to learn and also tough because changing a model um, is going to have all kinds of other consequences. So, you know, sometimes we would make changes to things and then our actors would have to, you know, go back and run through and like reblock a sequence. And they were so skilled and such smart people that they were able to do that. But mm-hmm. that could have tripped up, you know, other people. So yeah. it's uh, everyone was so fully invested to doing the best that they could and to taking something on with so many 
risks. And I think that really comes with doing live performance and working with new technology. It's that kind of mix where you are working at a cutting edge where it could be totally rewarding, but also a lot of things could go wrong. And so for us, I just felt like there are things that we can design better. And that that only came from being in front of a live audience and doing that kind of testing and having that feedback. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What really got you into um, using newer technologies like VR and experimenting in this sort of like... I mean, it's almost like an augmented reality space because you're taking projections from inside the the virtual environment and putting them outside as well. Um, like, what was your sort of transition like from more traditional theater and film into um, trying to experiment with these technologies? I've been wanting to work in VR, but I didn't even know that it was VR. So I was making a feature documentary about an outsider scientist, and his theory was so big and so three-dimensional in a sense. It explored waves and connectedness between people and human nature and nature itself. And the only way that I could picture it was making this kind of non-linear interactive experience. And I was trying to figure out, it was that, you know, there were these really interesting documentaries that were this kind of long form. The NFB from Canada was doing these great explorations and these kind of long form um, interactive web transmedia-based projects. Mm-hmm. And so I could picture people running around with iPads in the real world and being socially connected to each other and exploring three-dimensional animation. So in some sense, that's augmented reality. But I also pictured them walking inside of that, like being able to walk inside a three-dimensional picture and web and have an understanding of micro and macro scales. And that was VR, but I didn't know that. So I was writing this treatment and I would pitch it alongside of this documentary in different meetings and nobody knew what I was talking about. I knew that there was like, that there had to be some other kind of technology and I just had to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And I kept thinking like, I think it's something with like, you know, a phone or, but it's larger, like an iPad, but it's like (laughs) stuck to their head, right? So that that sounds so you put it on your face and you, but you're running around in the world, but you know where you're going. It's okay. Yeah. You're not gonna hit things. You're yeah. not gonna hit things, right? <laughs> so that didn't make any sense to people. And I, you know <laughs> a little bit they, of a hurt cell first. They definitely thought um I would must have been uh, you know, coming from another land or something. But the moment I did my first VR experience, I found myself at Tribeca Storyscapes. And I was one of the last people to get to experience this immersive, interactive story called The Enemy that was done by a French team directed by Karim Ben Khalifa. And that was really a game changer for me. I had an opportunity to explore so many things that mattered for me as an artist, but wasn't something that I could do in a two-dimensional format. Now I was able to walk through the experience physically embodied. I could engage with the characters. I had to confront them and actually have a certain physical distance from them in order to make the story happen. And that came off of my interaction with them, my engagement. It was so empowering as a storyteller and as someone that has been dreaming about building a three-dimensional world, the possibilities for storytelling just seemed limitless at that point and exactly what I had been envisioning for this wave story. That was a light bulb moment. Yeah. What was that story about? Basically what Kareem's team did 
and the, the entire team from the enemy, they recorded two different people that would look at each other as enemies. So they recorded a Palestinian soldier and an Israeli soldier, and they used photogrammetry. And so they were their actual size. And you walked up to each of them. They gave them the same exact questions about why they engaged in battle, what they were fighting for, if they'd ever killed anyone before, whether they had families. These were very human questions, things that you might want to see in a documentary, but now you get to see them answering them in front of you and breathing in front of you in real life. And of course, they mixed all kinds of techniques from game development techniques to photogrammetry. I think they retopologized the, you know, the entire mesh texture of these soldiers to make them look very human and accurate to how they appear in the real world, you know, sort of pre-existing a lot of the volumetric capture and technologies that we have right now. So they were really ahead of the curve and they did this from a really pure journalistic standpoint and then gave the audience inside of the experience, the player, this ability to engage and interact and sort of, you know, ignite the story themselves. Did those two soldiers have uh, sort of direct interaction during the, during the experience of any kind? Or is it just sort of them individually recounting uh, answers to those questions and they their experience? Were, they were individuals and they stood at a distance across each other. I want to guess that there was maybe 15 to 20 feet of space between them. But you had to get close enough to them. You had to get something like maybe five feet away from them in order for their story to come alive. Oh, wow. So the, okay, that's what you meant by the proximity being so key to the actual experience. Exactly. That you weren't having a distant experience with them. You were having a one-on-one experience with them. You had to look them in the eyes and see oh, how they, really cool. <laughs> and see how they breathed and responded. And, you know, I'm always the kind of explorer that wants to see how an experience breaks. So I would try other things. I wasn't brave enough to run around them. You know, I had colleagues <laughs> that did other things. They're soldiers. You know, these guys yeah, are, yeah. They, they live very meaningful, serious lives. Their choices are, are very bold. So I wasn't bold enough to, uh, you know, to make run circles around them and try and, you know, do anything kind of really provocative. But I did try getting very close to them. And I remember they had built in a reaction technique that they sort of backed off. And it was really interesting. I thought, like, wow, there's so much potential here again in this three-dimensional storytelling. How much space was that experience? Was it, uh, like, how big was the room? Tribeca gave them a really large space. I mean, I'm just guessing from, you know, also now having built a VR theater and, you know, tracking actors that each need a 10 by 10 square foot space that they, that this was a pretty large space. I'm just going to guess that it was a 20 by 30 or 20 by 40 foot space. And so from that point, you have this experience, you see, like beforehand, you realize that you needed something like this. You just didn't know that it existed. Then you have this experience and the light bulb went off. And so what were your next steps after that? Were you like, oh my God, this is what I need to do for the Waves project? Or where did you even go from there? I think I went straight to their producers and I said, how did you build this? You know, what 
software did you use? What technology? How did you capture this? You know, show me your cameras. What can you teach me? And they were really generous. What I loved, especially about the, the VR community at that time frame was everyone was saying, you know, borrow my camera. I think I remember actually walking out into the Tribeca area. They had made this really cool seating area where you could sit on these kind of comfy couch stools, these sort of, um, what's the name for it? Um, we're talking VR here and I can't even think of the name of the chair. The, the chairs that are, they're just comfy stools that spin around 360. Is yeah, that what they were not 360 chairs. They yeah. were just like those, like, like kids would have them, like round bean chairs, like yeah, yeah, pillow yeah. chairs. Yeah. yeah. That you could just kind of like pick up your pillow and like move it to sit by somebody else. We did a lot of that. I remember that specifically from that year. It was this kind of really interactive time where people were sharing knowledge with each other and talking about the 360 GoPro things that they were gluing together and you know (laughs) do you have a couple extra memory cards we could borrow you know like we don't have enough mini SD cards but do you have some you know we've got the cameras now but we don't have this so you'd hear about people kind of (laughs) trading technology and sharing tools with each other and I mean that is really how I got my first shoot off the ground cardboard city I borrowed from tons of people from a lot of my peers in New York because we only had two rental houses that had VR cameras and they were renting for huge prices and they were booked out through through the shoot that we wanted to coordinate. So we had to rely on our peers to pull it together. And I think that's something that we should continue to remember as a as an ecosystem. How can we keep supporting each other? Where can we lend a tool? You know, a volumetric stage is harder to lend, but what else can we be doing with each other to make our projects come alive? Yeah. What year was that, that Tribeca Festival? That was, I think it was 2015. Okay. We could, uh, we could take a look at the NME website. Oh, yeah. That's a good point. Well, yeah, probably. I, might, I mean, my guess was 2015, 2016. <laughs> yeah. So at some point around then, I hear you searching it. 20, 2015. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. That's what those clicks were in the background. Yes, that's so cool that that was the type of environment and culture that sharing. Because you're totally right. I mean, I'm thinking in Seattle, if you want to get one of the best 360 cameras right now, I only know. I mean, just a few people who have them, and that's mm-hmm. probably exaggerating. I mean, I, I'm sure they exist elsewhere, but like that whole even some of the the biggest rental agencies uh, for cameras around here. They don't have them, right? Um, so it is really relying on on your community for sure. It's true. It's sort of like we've the, the industry is finding this wave right now where we're kind of going up with resources and places to take classes and hackathons and meetups and, you know, grants to apply for. And then now we've kind of fallen like, okay, that's not as present as it was a few years ago, but there's still all these people that are making really exciting discoveries in their work. So how can we get back to the place where we have all those resources resources again, where we have enough 360 cameras of a high level to create great content? Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's been a general sort of conversation that we keep having with people is, uh, is just this sort of excitement that happened over VR and this whole industry over the past few years and then has kind of, reached a trough now where we're trying to find a healthier way to grow moving forward. But 
Um, I mean, I would, I would love to hear your thoughts on, on how you think that progression is going to be moving forward or like where we're really going with that now that we've kind of leveled out the excitement is not quite as fierce as before, but maybe we're moving into something that's a little bit more sustainable. Sustainability is what we need in so many parts of our lives. I think that we still have to define what we're doing as an industry. You know, now we've, as the XR industry has grown and gone on to include AR and MR and what those things mean. And again, I think there's been a lot of hype around AR and telling an AR story, I think is actually quite challenging. The, you know, are we a games industry? Are we an experiences industry? Are we a journalistic industry? I mean, basically VR is a tool and it can be applied to so many different places. And so I think we're seeing that in the medical and science world, there's some really accurate, tangible use cases that will always find funding. But as storytellers, how are we going to, you know, be able to craft the kind of stories that we want to tell when getting a high quality 360 camera, getting enough time in the right stitching program and a, and a computer to run that software? Um, being able to work with developers and build in a game engine and 3D model a world. All of these things are not cheap. They can be done by one person, but they'll take a lot of time. And if you want to get your story out in the world and it is something that matters and feels current, then how do you race against the clock to do that? So I think that we are finding, you know, there are these sort of more sustainable practices that are coming about and we're making smarter choices when we make stories so that we don't waste a lot of time shooting footage that we know we're not going to need to render a process. And we don't 3D model assets that aren't relevant to the actual story. You know, I think that everyone's pipelines are just getting tighter. And I think if you talk to any successful VR company, they're going to say, oh, wow, we did it this way in the first, in our early years, our first experience, but we would never do it that way again. <laughs> that only comes by making those mistakes and there aren't enough rule books and guidebooks for us to follow. And I think that's where, you know, we have to fall down and get back up again and learn from the mistake and then make sure that we teach each other so that we can be more sustainable and we use the resources that we have as wisely as we can. Yeah. Um, how is that going in New York? Like, obviously, Tribeca's in New York and you live in New York. So do you feel like there is a good community supporting each other through those tumbles and experiments in New York? The New York community has always been strong. I mean, we have a really growing, booming volumetric community here led by the founders of Depth Kit led by, you know, all kinds of other practitioners. Now we've got the light frame guys that have have been growing their studio. I mean, I think that there's a lot of interest. They're very smart, hardworking people in New York and motivated people. And they want to tell great stories and challenge the techniques and the capabilities of all of this technology. So we have, you know, really kind of cutting edge, interesting, experimental, intellectual pieces that come out of here. We've also got ITP from NYU and SVA and Columbia University and Lance Weiler's Digital Storytelling Lab that comes out of Columbia. I mean, it's a really great group of thinkers in New York. And I feel like everyone is trying different types of techniques for storytelling and the type of technology that we can mix with storytelling in VR and AR. So 
you know, I think that New York has always been a really special place. And I would love to see a new VR conference take foothold here. I mean, I think we are ripe for, again, bringing all of these great thinkers and experimenters together to create something even more sustainable. Yeah, I'd love to see that happen. I love any excuse (laughs) to go to New York. And it's been really interesting. I think, I mean, being in Seattle and just the West Coast in general, I don't speak for everyone, but I have this feeling like I have no clue what's going on in on the East Coast in the XR world and how New York is feeling about it or Boston or whatever. Um, it's awesome to hear that it's strong. And I mean, that's pretty much obvious to me because I did live in New York and, and the biggest benefit there is like the, the people and the brains the and yeah, just like how many people are working hard and wanting to experiment and um, latch on to uh, what the next greatest thing is. That being said, I'm assuming there's still some pushback. Like there's plenty of people. I mean, I know I have some friends who work in film in New York uh, who don't know anything about XR or 360. So what sort of conversations are you having with people in your like with your peers that are in filmmaking or in theater traditional mediums right with regards to XR? Like, are they curious about it or are they pushing back or how is that going? So. A lot of interesting conversations come up around whenever I run a workshop with other people and, or if there's a panel, for example, people will, people will approach me after. Sometimes they might be shy to say it in front of an audience and say, you know, well, how is this better than film? Or, you know, how do I tell a story like I can in the film in, you know, I understand I can edit and I can, you know, put the audience where I want them to look. And for me, it's just a totally different medium. You have to look at it as a different medium. (laughs) You know, it's the same if we're, if we're listening to a podcast, that is a different type of experience that you're designing than you would be if you are shooting a TV series, you know, and is that TV series multi-cam or single cam? Like that's also different. So it's really based around your design. And I think that's really critical to VR. So when you say, when a, a filmmaker is hesitant, for example, and they say, well, how am I going to make sure that my audience looks where I want them to look? There are mm-hmm. tricks that people do. And I think a lot of that happens in theater and live performance, actually, that that lends itself really well to VR. Yeah. But at the same time, it's sort of missing the point. I think if yeah. you're so convinced that the only way to tell a story is if you can control it and you therefore have to frame it, then VR might not be the perfect medium. VR has other really beautiful abilities. And so if you really want to frame something like a painting, because that's where your storytelling shines, then, you know, film is probably the best medium and language for you. But if you are thinking about how you could give somebody freedom, for example, or agency to look where they want to, to go where they want to, then VR is a great medium for those things and something that you wouldn't do in film. Yeah. Right. So it's just not a strength, like framing the shot or the thing that you want to capture is just not the way to think about VR. I think that's like the fundamental, one of the fundamental differences. I think anything with a 2D interface is where <laughs> is where you're going to encounter a real tension between yeah. a, a language that we are that we that has been developed that we're very familiar yeah. with. We know how yeah. to watch things and consume things. We know how to make good cuts and edits. There's practices for that. And VR, we're still figuring those things out. 
And I think that this is yeah. where it's exciting and we have to keep experimenting as a medium. Yeah. What do you have any sort of conclusions yet about what does work or what's starting to work? Meaning, one thing that I feel like uh, people say a lot is they think they've kind of figured out something like VR storytelling and they might say like, well, it's more like theater. You just have to like put the camera down in the center of the room and have people <laughs> dance around it, right? Which is just like, you can no, probably tell me. by the tone in my voice that that's not, you know, it's like it's, it's right. It's <laughs> like, does not agree doing... with this theory. <laughs> yeah, I do not agree with this theory. Um, but people keep like doing it. <laughs> and so, um, <laughs> but I think the reason, no, I'm being mean, but I mean like what the thing is that people are trying to figure out, like you were saying, they're trying to translate it directly and they're trying to decide like, what do cuts look like? What, where, where do you place the camera? Is there camera movement? Oh, no, camera movement might make people feel sick, so let's just keep the camera still. And they're trying to figure out what those principles are, but I think that we are not at a place. I think pe the danger zone that we are in is that people are coming up with what they think are principles, but they seem to me like kind of bad ones. Like they're just saying, oh, you can't do movement. So they don't mess with it, right? Even, even a lot of the language that you just used right now was very much centered around the perspective of a camera, which doesn't yeah. really make sense well, as much. Well, fair, right? totally. Yeah, but I think there is still the camera part. I mean, yeah. no matter which way you, you put it. But yeah. um, for you, Kira, like, do you have things that you feel like are myths that you want to like demystify for people or things that you think are, are actually working that you think most people aren't, aren't understanding? Sure. I mean, so let's take the camera, for example, that Jay was pointing out, you know, when we're working in a game engine, for example, then we are dealing with a camera. But I like to think of the person at the center of the experience as a player. So they're not an object. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really mm -hmm. tough for us to even wrap our heads around when we're working with developers and we're working with software language where things are looked upon as objects. But these are also people, you know, a volumetric dancer can be looked at as an asset, as an object that is placed in a scene, but it's also a person. So that's like pretty tricky for us to start to kind of steer our heads in a way where we know what needs to be applied and how the language will work and how it has to be coded, but then to also just make sure that we're course correcting our thinking in this other way that keeps these things as human-centered experiences. And I think that's really important. If you're putting people inside a technology, what do you want them to experience? If you want them to feel a distance from the thing that they're watching and it's just a set of objects moving around, then you keep it in that mindset and you treat everything with that kind of language. And if you mm -hmm. want them to have a human experience and feel something emotionally, whether it's empathy, sadness, joy, um, anger, then I think to live on an emotional spectrum, we also have to treat the language that we're using in the entire development process around mm -hmm. more human style language. So mm -hmm. that's yeah. a pretty big mind shift. I don't know that any team is doing that. I, you know, I try consciously to remind my teams that I'm working with and I have some great people around me who also help me think that way. So that's, yeah. that's pretty important. And I think, you know, a, a big piece of that is actually also just having diversity 
on your teams and, and diversity in production and in your development process, that's, that's pretty important to be bringing in perspectives from that can be from, you know, the makeup of your team and their gender and their beliefs. It can also be just the type of practice that someone has had in their life, like a UX designer, like a choreographer, like a musician, like a sculpture artist, that these different types of practices, the more diverse, I think, the better, so long as they're glued around the same intention of the piece and they're trying to reach the same goal. Okay, so mm. principles that I've learned, things that <laughs> I find um, uh, are helpful. I think a lot of it is, you know, you can set a kind of rule that you want to set. There, there are certain things that I think are helpful. Like you don't want to make someone sick and an experience. Probably not. Maybe you do. But probably your goal is not for them to like take off the headset and feel dizzy for several hours, because that will just make them not want to return. So there are things that help us do that. Camera stability is an easy one to go to. But that doesn't mean you can't take the risk of moving a camera or taking them to another location through a cut. I think it's Mm -hmm. just that if the goal is to keep them feeling healthy after they do the experience, then you're going to make sure that when you do those things, you are, you are being thoughtful about those choices. How, how frequent you make them happen? How, what's the duration of those things? One of my big questions is, you know, can, can we empower the player to just do that themselves? So if a camera is going to move, can they make the choice to be on the shot that moves the camera through it? harder to do, right? But it's possible. Um, You know, is that better in a branching storyline? And that works in a kind of format, again, that isn't something that we're as traditional, uh, you know, that that we're so used to, a format that has been established and proven, linear cuts we know work. So that's where, you know, this kind of decision that's made by an editor is happening. by choice, by force. But what if we give that tool to the player instead and they make that choice and they become the editor in a way? And that I think is just by design. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So how do you write with a diff with this mind shift that you were talking about? Because you write, mm. you also have collaborated with writers. Um, and and so I'm curious, like with that mind shift you've talked about and with some of these principles in mind, what is different for you about writing for these experiences? I guess if you're approaching the narrative storytelling, is it like a choose your own adventure? Yeah, it can (laughs) be. Yeah, exactly. I think just thinking about what your, what the player's experience is, who they are, you know, is a place that I like to start with and the core feeling that I want them to have. And then always like designing around that feeling and coming back to that feeling. So Mm -hmm. if the feeling is, for example, a feeling of joy and happiness, then, you know, we're not going to try and scare them and um, put them in a really dark environment and have lots of shadows where, you know, things are lurking Mm -hmm. behind to make them feel unsafe. So that's the, you know, each creative decision then supports that core feeling and whatever mm. that player's purpose is supposed to be inside the experience. So that's the so very much like constructing an ambiance that matches the 
the mood and, and state of mind you want them exactly. in at each point. Exactly. Yeah. Constructing the ambiance, the energy of the space, um, environment, I think plays a really big part into it. Space. We know, I believe space tells a story that's something I've been thinking about for, for many years while working in this medium that each time, you know, what is the primary location? and What is the story of that space? Mm-hmm. I love that. It makes me think so much about space design in real life, right? I mean, I'm <laughs> yeah. uh, not, <laughs> I have no skills in this area, <laughs> but um, I, my mom loves, you know, HGTV and all of this stuff. And she'll <laughs> she'll tell me what to do. But one of the things she she talks about that you just reminded me of is like, you have to start with one thing. And then you have to be like, this is my my theme, whether that's like a a vase, a, a picture, a curtain you like, the rug, like you have to start with something and start with like the feeling that you want in that room mm-hmm. and start with that object of inspiration. Absolutely. And then you build everything around that. Find and so, yeah, yeah. And, and it, it helps you keep with it centered with with that whole feeling that you started with, otherwise you can get out of hand with the design of the space and it, and it won't eventually have that, you know, je ne sais quoi connection and feeling. <laughs> and that sounds like exactly what you're saying, except that it's not necessarily an object. You're picking a person's journey in there and their feel general feeling. Yeah. Um, so I love that. I, I think that's, that's really helpful and, and thoughtful. I love that approach. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Yeah. Were you going to say so it's often been described, I think we were talking about this earlier, um, it's been described as like thinking of creating scenes um, in a story in VR as concentric rings kind of of experience, like you are in that setting, that ambiance, and then you transition to the next sort of setting and ambiance, however that transition happens. And so each one of those settings has to kind of make sense with the mood and message that you're trying to, to send. Yeah, it sounds like it's like you're creating multiple worlds. So if you are transitioning to your point here about uh, you're not cutting between frames, you're cutting between worlds. And I think that's what you mean by like the concentric yeah. circles is that you're you're going from world to the next world to the next world and you mm-hmm. have to, that type of a connection is very different than connecting frames. And so you have to build it around exactly. that Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you're, we're working spatially. So how do you get from one space or right. one reality to another? You know, the, the rules of one world can be different in another. Right. So I know that we're running low on time. Um, one of the questions I had is, so for the experiences you have that are in the festival rounds right now, we talked a lot about run-in. We talked about love seat. Uh, we mentioned some things like improv that you worked in. There's a lot of other work that you've had. What is the afterlife for some of these things? Like, where do they go from here? Do you think that people will eventually be able to go experience something on the store, like for run-in or what happens with Love Seat? Does it just like hopefully travel? It's so different, right? I mean, we're in a new medium, so distribution is still being figured out in this medium. And a lot of these experiences are required and built on, on, you know, a a certain kind of spec that a regular household may not have. Um, You know, something like my mom doesn't have. Um, Many of my colleagues, even in our industry, don't even have. So sometimes when you're working in this medium where you want to push the limits, then 
you know, mass distribution isn't something that's possible. Um, I mean, certainly when we're doing a live performance, that's something that's very special about it. So there is a time and place that it happens and going back to revisit it isn't going to happen because that's not the purpose. But can we transcend the limitations of space? I think there are ways that we can do that. You know, can we run a production from our New York space and broadcast that to, to a virtual audience? Of course we can. We'll miss that other live element of bringing another audience in. And that's something that I'm still very interested to do. And so then uh, to your point, Kelly, where you're saying, you know, can that travel? Can that tour? Of course it could. Yes, we could, we could go to Seattle and run a show for an audience there and also stream <laughs> to an international audience. There are possibilities there. I think the trickier thing is, you know, how these things can become repeatable and done for creators in a way that is affordable for the creator. That is a much more complicated question. Um, you know, run in, uh, the room scale version of it runs best. Um, on a, on a really high end PC with a great graphics card. And those things are expensive, but you're going to have the best, most embodied experience that way. There's now been a 360 adaptation that, uh, I believe has just premiered, um, and will be readily available, uh, with Samsung gear and with that platform. So there are other, you know, ways to be um, creating content and designing content. And it's, it's really just about the type of the type of experience that you want to give people and what that's meant to be, you know, there are theatrical experiences that chained, for example, was run, and that was a one person experience with these actors, that was a very intimate experience. And that was meant to be that way to give them that kind of specialized insert into that world. And then you have other types of, you know, incredible 360 videos that can be experienced by by many people, even on a mobile device, or plugging a mobile device into a headset. So there are all kinds of levels. And I think it's really just about the type of experience that you want to have and the kind of audience you want to reach. And thinking about those things, how to connect those dots until there is some kind of really easily determined distribution plan that a creator can just log into and figure out either how to self-distribute or, you know, to work with distribution companies in VR of which, you know, there aren't, there aren't many practices yet. So these things are, they're so new and I think they're still being worked out. And the more that we can find technology and other tools like internet, these things connecting with each other that will help us sort of, make these points be more efficient for us to reach a wider audience faster. Yeah. Well, I definitely hope that we stay in touch because uh, I think whether you come back on the podcast and talk about your future experiments, which we hope you do, um, but also just to be able to communicate to our, you know, local people or people listening to the podcast, how they can eventually access some of this stuff. It's it's really important. Um, It's really important to us. And I know that that distribution channel is tough. So as much as, you know, you can use us to do, to help communicate things, like whether that's a show has traveled um, to a new spot or that they can access something on a store, we'd love to keep people updated on someone we've had on. Can you tell us anything about what's next right now? Or the next experiment (laughs) to keep working towards that goal. I've been working on a game about gentrification. So that's a, that's still ongoing hard because it's multiplayer um, (laughs) and building multiplayer experiences are hard. 
and it's a game about a really difficult topic. So, but it's, it's really built around storytelling where you, the player become a, a part of the story and you share your own stories in it with other people. So, and it's mixing other types of media. Like we're mixing in 360 video. I was one of uh, a creator, part of the Google Ye Halo program. And so that was special to get to shoot with that camera. So I documented a lot of stories around Brooklyn and neighborhoods that are changing that have, that are in the process of gentrifying or have already been gentrified um, and are finding what that world is like to continue to sustain a business or make art in these neighborhoods that are changing very rapidly. And then my dream with that piece is to find a way to turn that into a tool for people to use to empower them to actually change their own communities and have a voice. Wow. Well, I'm really excited <laughs> to see what to see what happens yeah. with that. So we'd love to we definitely love to have you back on in the future yeah. and, and stay in touch about these experiments. It's it's really lovely having you, Kira. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Reality Quest. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Yeah. Again, Kira's amazing. Follow her in all the places. So here's here's some helpful links, and we'll also like link to all of this stuff in our website as well. Um, so okay, her production company or her studio is called Double Eye. So you can go check out all of her work. Um, a lot of the stuff that we talked about at doubleeye.co. So that's D-O-U-B-L-E-E-Y-E dot C-O. Um, and then, uh, you can follow her on Instagram at double I and Twitter at double I pro. Uh, we mentioned a couple of things. So there's a, there's a blog on medium she talked about at the very beginning, um, which was alive in plastic land, um, that showcases some episodes with some of her research, um, that she did with that team that we talked about, uh, and some of their experiments they were doing with like, um, improv and all of that. Um, so we'll link to that, but again, it's called Alive in Plastic Land with an exclamation point. Mm. Alive in Plastic Land <laughs> <laughs> on Medium. And um, there was another article where we talked about um, this woman who like experienced the uh, theater piece Love Seat, who mm-hmm. did it in in both ways. Yeah. Um, and that was also on Medium called Birds and Bees and Mul- – oh, wait, is it on Medium? No, sorry. I messed that up. That's okay. It's on No Proscenium. Either way, we'll link to it. But if you look up an article, I think it's noproscenium.com. And um, it's called Birds and Bees and Multiple Realities, Love Seat at Venice. Uh, And so look that up, and we will also link to it on the website. Thank you so much, Kira. It was great. Yeah. Um, So a little bit more about Reality Quest, especially if maybe this happens to be your first episode for some reason, or you just didn't get to the credits at the end of any of the previous ones. Um, you got to listen poll to poll. That's what yeah, my friend yeah, Charlie yeah. does. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, oh, I go, I go poll to poll because I told him, I was like, I gave you a shout out in the last one, but I didn't know if he would hear it. But he goes, oh, Kelly, oh, I no. listen poll <laughs> to poll. That's a real dedicated fan there. So wow. yeah. Anyways, yeah. if you don't like happen that. to do that, <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Here's all our info. You can find us at realityquestpodcast.com. Um, we've had the website up for a little bit now. There, all of our episodes are there and more information about context and things we talk about in the episodes. Yeah. Also, you can email us there. Yep. There's yep. a, yeah, there's a, there's a comment form and everything if you choose to do that. We also, uh, we've been publishing just random little updates and things through our Instagram, um, which is Reality Quest Podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also have a Twitter, which, uh, to be honest, we are trying to. Uh, oh yeah, we're get not good at, at Twitter. Yeah, that's not... my that's my bad. Jay's so good. <laughs> I'm terrible at social media, I, but I I'm mean, trying. I'm not great at Twitter. I'm I'm learning on that. But, but someday I definitely... we might tweet, and you're gonna want to be there. <laughs> you don't want to miss it. <laughs> Feel the FOMO. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, sorry to put reality that reality underscore on you. quest. Yeah. I'm like, right? Yeah. I don't even know what it is. No, yeah, it, it's reality it is, underscore quest. Yeah. It is definitely at. Go follow quest. it. It's you're missing all the great content. <laughs> It's such a rich experience. <laughs> um, also on the website, we mm-hmm. have uh, the the well. Besides emailing us and sending us all your feedback, and also mm-hmm. any any comments you want to hear. Like the other day, Jay did a, a, a Instagram post where you could like submit thoughts of like questions you have, yeah. things you want to hear on the podcast. We love to hear that stuff. Like love various feedback, feedback. only yep. positive, of course. But no, <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, do that Honest. through the website Honest or we want. yeah, follow the Instagram to do that. Yeah, and and if you like. If you like all of the stuff we do, including the episodes and like random art for those things, um, you know, you can support us to continue to do more of this and come up with more ideas. We've, we would love to do things like more uh, group format episodes or do ones that are focused on sort of audience feedback, maybe even things in real time. But we need to figure out how to keep this this whole endeavor going mm-hmm. long term. We yeah. want to. There's so much we want to do with it, and um, we could really use people's help um, and support in that. So if you have the means and you love what we're doing, you can go and support us on Patreon or uh, Ko-Fi. That's like K-O dash F-I or Coffee, basically. Mm-hmm. We're on both of those platforms. You can just search Reality Quest Podcast and you will find us there. They can also link through the website, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there are That's links probably to the easiest way to find it. Both of those yeah. through the re- the website. And that is, again, Reality Quest. Yeah. And actually, this episode is a great example because we can't afford to travel to New York. <laughs> and I know that's asking a lot, but, uh, you know, little donations do a lot. And we could potentially yeah. do a whole, like, week or something in New- or weekend in New York where we get to find people and actually do in-person talks with them mm-hmm. because it's really hard to get the same feel over the phone not it to mention really that whole bandwidth thing there are a number of people we'd love to go and meet with down in la for example and yeah. we're just looking for the right opportunity to make a trip down there yeah um, more importantly yeah. though we also recently recorded our first four person um uh, uh interview where we had like two guests on and we all decided that the best way to have this long of a conversation is that we needed instead of regular chairs a donut shaped giant bean bag yeah we basically so, like a fire pit bean bag, right? <laughs> oh yes, yeah. with like a with like a um, what's it called? The ele- uh, not electric fireplace, but like is that what it's called? Oh, electric like the little, fireplace in the yeah, middle. Where yeah, there's yeah. like there's a light in the middle and there's oh, like cloth and, and a God, fan. Oh my It's happening. Yeah. So you got Anyways, like fake fire. And... Yeah, that's the first priority. So <laughs> yeah, that is that's the next thing we need. We we're should add on that. if like I know that we can do like they can buy us coffee and stuff, but yeah, I feel yeah. like. We should like. I wonder if there's a way we can do it where they can specifically donate to the donut. Uh, well, maybe we could do a crowdfunding campaign Ooh. for for the donate donut, to the donut donut beanbag bean fireplace. Bag. <laughs> Anyways, anyways, hope you enjoyed this episode yeah. of Reality Quest. See you guys next time. <laughs>